Hi, Black Hollywood Live fans. Today, we've got the author of a book about the Rodney King trials in studio with us to talk about the trial 25 years later and an update on some of the more recent police brutality cases. Stay with us on Justice is Served. You are tuned in to Black Hollywood Lives. Justice is Served. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Justice is Served. We have a special episode today looking back 25 years ago at the trial that was happening. Well, right now, today, if this was 25 years ago, we would be in like day three or four of the riots that resulted from the Rodney King uh, trial decision. And we're here with the author of a book called Moral Uncertainty, uh, the inside the Rodney King juries. And, uh, and also, let's talk, we're, we're gonna talk about Alton Sterling and Walter Scott and of course uh, Jordan Edwards. So we've got a, uh, a jam-packed uh, itinerary for everyone. In case this is your first episode of Justice is Served, welcome. My name is Chelsea Galicia. I am joined by a panel of attorneys. Today, uh, we also have on the, on the panel a journalist who wrote this book. Normally, this is a panel of just attorneys talking about the latest in the legal news around the country. I am joined by Yemi Abayami and Shaka Smith. Yeah. All right, and out today is Dominique. Uh, we will miss her, and she'll be back with us. Oh, wait, not next week, but the week after that. Mm -hmm. So the three of us are going to have to hold down the fort. <laughs> Uh, in any case, let's just start with our, uh, our, our guest who wrote a fascinating book. And this book isn't even about the Rodney King trials. It is straight from the minds of the two jury foremen. So first, let me introduce you to you, Kathleen Newmeyer, who was there to witness the trials themselves, right, as a journalist. Because back in those days, 1992, we didn't have cameras. We only had journalists who were in the courtrooms to report to us what was going on. But I wasn't in the courtroom for the two Rodney King trials. I just was talking to the four people after it. So. You were in the in the trials of other notable tr yes. uh, trials uh, or earlier than yeah. that. Yeah, I covered the trial of Sirhan Sirhan, who assassinated oh, wow. Robert F. Kennedy. Yeah. And I was in the courtroom for almost everything that happened with Charles Manson and the Charles Manson family. And I covered Daniel Ellsberg in the Pentagon Papers trial, and John DeLorean in his little skirmish with the federal government over drugs. How do you stay sane? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good question. So the way that this book came around, because you weren't in the trial for in the courtroom from these trials, but you covered it. Yes. And then you got you received a letter. Yes. In the uh, in about August, the trial ended on uh, April. 29th, uh, 1992, with the verdict that started the riots within an hour. And uh, in about August, probably, that summer, I got a letter from a lawyer in Salt Lake City who said that he was representing Dorothy Daly, who had been the forewoman of the Rodney King, first Rodney King trial, the one that was called the Simi Valley trial, mm -hmm. that had been unable to find guilty any of the four Los Angeles police officers who had severely beaten Rodney King. And he said she'd been starting to write a book and she needed a writer to help her. And because I had written about the law for years, he asked me if I would help her write the book. And I did, and then in the process of that, the federal government filed civil rights charges against the officers, and that we went to trial in federal court. And so the foreman of the federal trial joined with us, and then I wrote his story as well, and we had a combined book. So that's really fascinating, because in the first trial, not guilty for any of the officers. Yes. In the second trial for the civil rights one, only two of the officers were found guilty of violating his civil rights. Yes. 
All right. And then, so there's, it's interesting to look at the differences in those. But before that, did you get a sense of why these jury four people wanted to have their story told? Dorothy was just completely horrified by the fact that she felt like she had caused all of this devastation. Mm. She had thought that what that the, what the police officers did was terrible, that Rodney King was horribly beaten, that that should never happen to a human being. But the jury was unable to agree that uh, the police officers weren't doing what they were supposed to do as police officers. So you say several times that they were unable to overcome reasonable doubt. That's right. That a reasonable officer could have would have acted differently. They, they felt that any reasonable police officer would have made the same decisions that these police officers did. It, they, they were following someone who was accused of breaking the law. He was just speeding at the time, but they felt he was trying to get away from them. They thought he might be armed. They thought he might be on PCP. They were afraid of him, basically, and they, had to, they couldn't just let him run away. They needed to stop him somehow. They didn't use their guns. They, the CHP had pulled out the gun, and the Los Angeles Police Department told the officer to put it away, and they'd handle this, and then they handled it with their steel batons. And they did it following the rules that they had been trained to do by the LAPD. They were allowed to use those batons to break bones. That was within their training. And the jurors were horrified to hear that they were allowed to do that. They thought it was wrong, but then when they were trying to figure out what they did that was illegal, they couldn't figure out how it was illegal if that was what they were supposed to do. Yikes. And so for so many of us, we came to the conclusion that they were guilty because of the video. Yes. That was the first and foremost, and that was, in the first trial, that was the first witness. Come to find out, you know, we've seen the, the video, and, you know, just in case, uh, in case maybe you're listening and weren't even born at the time of the <laughs> Rodney King uh, story, we're going to play a, a short clip of that. Do we have that ready to roll? All right, great. And, uh, and this, this footage is not going to look anything like our cell phone video that we have. Uh, or it might. <laughs> right. But, I mean, because, I mean, this is 1992. Oh, yeah. Or 91. I think you about know. the dash cam videos, they really haven't <laughs> changed much. In so this was taken by a gentleman who had gotten a new camera, and he was looking over from his apartment building. Yes. This was from a camcord recorder, camcord which was new at the time. And what was the landmark case about this was that this was the first time that we had ever had a videotape that showed police officers beating someone. People had been beaten before, but there hadn't been any right. evidence. So on. so this was the, all right, that's enough. So, I can't uh, take it anymore. But, but I mean, that's the point. Like, if you can't take it anymore, then it should be found that they were, excessive force well, was so, used. Well, so, okay, so maybe there we watched, what, maybe 10 seconds of it? If that, but, and that's, and all the clips that we saw on the news, that's what I thought was the whole length of the video. It wasn't until reading your book that I found out the video is actually much longer than the news clips that we saw. Not a lot longer, but somewhat longer, and it does show Rodney King trying to get up repeatedly, which is why they felt that he wasn't complying and that they couldn't keep him and that up. he must be on PCP in yes. order to be able to withstand all the beating and yes. still come back. Yes, that's true. The and other thing is, when you see things on TV, you, um, you it's different than what the jury was seeing, too, what the jury knew about. And one of the things you knew if you were watching television or you were listening to people talk about it for months is that you knew that there were probably two dozen police officers yeah, there's standing another, like, there. Yeah, oh, yeah, people are standing around watching. They're not taking part in this. And so it's hard to believe that you've got one man on the ground and all those people yeah. can't somehow manage to subdue him without continuing to hit him. That those four somehow felt they need to continue to beat him with their backup yes. right there. Yes. 
So the video is a bit longer. The video shows him getting up. Now, I, I can't remember, is it from the video or was it testimony that Rodney King had actually taunted the officers before? When he got out of, the, uh, out of his car, he was very drunk. He'd been drinking all evening and he was still legally drunk the next morning when they, when they tested him. But so when he was told to get out of the car, he forgot his seatbelt was fastened. And so he started to get out, but he couldn't get out. So that took a little while to get his belt off and to get out of the car. And then when he got out, it was a woman, CHP officer, who was coming forward, forward toward him with her gun drawn. And he turned around and sort of shook his buttocks at her. That was what they described it. And uh, that, was, uh, that was believed to be uh, uh, insulting to her as a woman, that that was a, a, a sexual gesture that he was making. Mm -hmm. And uh, then he did, he did uh, go forward like he was going to put his hands down. They started screaming at him to get down and to get in the prone position. He got on the ground, and by this time the LAPD officer had come up and told Nolney Singer, the highway patrol officer, to put her gun away that they would take over. And he took over, and then the, these four stood around him and subdued him yeah. with their sticks. So, uh, so, the, the, so Dorothy's account, she uh, talks about the things that she didn't know about that all of us did because we had access to TV and newspaper. Of course, they were not supposed to be looking at that. She didn't know that the police policy was that you could use sticks and beat people till you broke their legs. That right, was, that and most of us didn't know her. that. Yes, and the, uh, the LAPD had used these, these sticks as an alternative to using their guns. They, they were working without their guns. They, nobody was getting shot. They were only having their bones broken. Oi, yeah. that's a, it's that's a very odd consolation. It's when excessive forces, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you don't lose your life, we'll just beat right. you to a pulp. Uh, and, and also that the jury didn't hear that, you know, the, the uh, police chief, Daryl Gates, at the time had come out and said that he was shocked by the video. And I think that would help us believe that, wait, so these officers did do something wrong, probably illegal, if the chief is shocked. But the jury didn't know about mm. that. All right, and so... The, the so they 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 I mean she goes through so detailed um, how how was it that 25 years later she had such detailed notes it wasn't 25 years later Dorothy took shorthand notes throughout the trial and uh, so when she came away from that trial with the trial practically verbatim in her notebooks and she was she was really just completely sick and she was horrified she couldn't believe it when she came home and turned on her TV and the city was on fire and, and she she thought did I cause this how could you know and she was did she regret the uh, not guilty verdict she no she thought she had done what she was supposed to do they had this jury had 78 pages of jury instructions to follow which completely overwhelmed them they read and reread those instructions uh, every time on every count that they considered. They had to consider counts against four different police officers. There was more than one count against them. They went, every time they considered anybody, they read the instructions again, trying to figure out what they were supposed to do. And they thought that they had done exactly what they had to do, um, that they had reached the only verdict that they could reach. Uh, they only had one count that they had difficulty on, and that was the count number two against, uh, against Officer Powell. And, uh, they were unable to reach a verdict on that, but they acquitted on all of the others. And those, those, the count that they acquitted everyone of was assault with a deadly weapon. And it was because they felt that they were doing this at, under their authority as police officers. It wasn't like they were just beating on some guy behind a bar. Yeah, yeah I was never able to reconcile how she reconciled her very notion of 
the wrongness of it with them somehow acquitting them. Well, she says it's there's a difference between something being immoral or being wrong and it being against a specific law. Yeah. I mean, if she'd had a law that said that it was excessive force, yeah. she might have gone with that. But they also had difficulty determining. She talked about how do you determine at what point it became excessive? Yeah. If, can, you, can you hit somebody 11 times and it's okay, and then the 12th time is wrong? They felt yeah. that at some point it was wrong, yeah. but they didn't. They thought they would have to say when when that happened. The other thing was that so in the, the tape that they saw, um, they, it was blurry, and they could not actually see where the blows hit. Okay. The federal jury had, had it enhanced by the FBI, and they could see more clearly. And Dorothy said, that if she had seen head blows, she would have considered that to be deadly force, mm -hmm. and so she would have felt that was assault with a deadly weapon. Wow. Yeah. And so I sorry, I interrupted you as you were saying that she took these notes 25 years yes. ago during the trial. Yes. She took, the, took them that, and they, as, she was near retirement, and as soon as the trial was over, she immediately retired. They sold their house, which was in Camarillo. An interesting thing is that the Simi Valley jury only had three people who lived in Simi. Mm -hmm. The rest did not. Uh, she lived in Camarillo. She and her husband sold their house, and they moved to Utah, where they had lived before they came eight years ago to work there. And she sat down at her computer, and she started writing the story because she said she wanted her children and her grandchildren to know why she did what she did. And so she wrote pretty much a, uh, a synopsis of the trial, and then she took it to a lawyer and said, what would I, should I do with this? And he said, we better hire a lawyer to help you, I mean, a journalist, help hire a writer to make this into a book. And so that's how I came to be involved with her. I was hired to help her write her book. So this project is actually 25 years yes. in the making. Yes. Because you had Dorothy and you had Bob. Yes. And you had interviewed both of them. Yes. And you had helped them write their accounts. Mm -hmm. And this was ready to roll. Yes. You were shopping it around. Yes. We had, a, we had an agent in New York who thought it was the proposal of a lifetime and that we were going to make a lot of money on this book, that there was going to be bidding wars to, to for, and we couldn't find a publisher who wanted to even look at the book. They said, those juries were crazy. Nobody wants to hear what the Rodney King jury thought and nobody wants to hear anything about Rodney King. It's, we're sick of it. By this time, the O.J. Simpson trial had mm -hmm. begun and that was, you know, that was very interesting. And, yeah, this certainly set the stage for that yes. acquittal almost. Yeah, and so nobody wanted to buy it and so I just put it on the shelf and went on and did other things. And then somehow something, was it the 25th year anniversary that did it? Yes. Uh, it, last fall, I noticed that notebook up on my top shelf, and I thought, it's been 25 years since, that this is going to be the 25th anniversary of the riots. Unreal. And I thought, this is a piece of history. Yeah. This is a piece of history. I don't care whether it sells hundreds and thousands of copies. I think it ought to be printed, and it ought to be in libraries, and people should be able to read and see. And one of the things that influenced me about it is that the things that those jurors struggled with, the ideas that they had and what worried them about it, were the same things that people all across America are struggling with in all of the police shootings that we have now. On the Rodney King one, it was the first time we'd ever had video. Now we have video lots of times, and then you have people who say, but police officers who are afraid for their lives, they should be allowed to go home at the end of their shift. They shouldn't get killed because somebody's got a gun in his pocket and, and they don't see it. And other people say, but if you were just speeding, you shouldn't be summarily executed. Right. Yeah. There's not, it's not a death penalty offense to yeah. have a broken taillight, even 
if you are a former convicted felon. Yeah, mm -hmm. you, absolutely. It doesn't matter what you did before. Yeah. It's what you are doing right now is what you should be being judged on. Was the question ever posed to Dorothy, or did she ever have any idea? Would it have been different if it had been a white, um, a white, if Rodney King had been white? I'm glad you asked that. Yeah. The, uh, it, it was always talked about that the Simi Valley trial was it was an all-white jury. Mm -hmm. They moved it to Simi Valley because they thought that it would be hard to find unprejudiced uh, jurors in Los Angeles County, so they moved it to Ventura County and to Simi Valley, which is it was a, at that time anyway a very white community, and a lot of police officers and firefighters lived out there. Yeah. There weren't any police officers or firefighters or their relatives on this jury, yeah. but the jury was uh, they it was had had one Hispanic and uh, one Asian person mm -hmm. who were who were on the jury that that heard that case, uh, and there is a man who has come forward recently saying that he was on that jury and that he was half black, that his father was black, yeah. but that he wasn't identifying as being half black at the time. Yeah. And so it's bothered him all these years that people were saying it was all white when he was actually half black. But it wouldn't have made a difference since the jury didn't know, they weren't yeah. perceiving him as being black. But Dorothy always said that they never mentioned race ever in the jury room, that that never came up. They thought this was a human they yeah. did think it was a, they thought he was a criminal. They thought that, that, they knew that he had been arrested before. And so they did think he might be a kind of a dangerous guy. But, and they did think he was big and the police officers might be afraid of him. So yeah, I wonder if that was, for me, that whether his size or the fear of the police was influenced by the fact that he was black and not it white. It may have been yeah. an implicit bias. Yeah. But she said they never, they never spoke about that. Yeah. In the, in the second trial, the federal trial, Bob has said that, and incidentally, that jury was was almost entirely white too. There was one black juror on that trial, uh, and there were two other minorities. But uh, so it was just about the same makeup. And Bob also says that they never ever talked about race on part of Rodney King's part, yeah. but that the police officers themselves made a lot of racist remarks that were part of the testimony, mm -hmm. and that influenced their decision that they felt that the police officers were prejudiced against Rodney King, and that perhaps the treatment of him was due to the fact that they were prejudiced against him. So Wow. And so you have made this book available. I see you have it here, in, have it here. in paperback. Where yes. can people pick that up in bookstores? Uh, you can pick up at a few bookstores in Los Angeles, independent bookstores. Actually, any bookstore you go into, they could look it up and they could order it for you. But it's a, almost every online retailer, I think. It's on Amazon, it's on Kobo, it's on iBooks. You can get the... Um, you can get an iBook or a Kindle book of it on Amazon. You can get the paper book on Amazon. It's also at Romans and Book Soup on Sunset. Um, so, and so, how has it been received now that like we are in like a renewed era of concern about police brutality because of the rise of cell phone footage? Is it now? It's and it's 25 years later. Does it feel like it's it's very timely now? I think it's very timely. Of course. And people who have read it are finding it fascinating. There, it's people I, who said, I thought I knew everything there was about this trial, and I couldn't believe that these people found him innocent, and then I, it was compelling. I realized what it was, how it looked like to them, and, and was, I changed my mind. And was it the Clinton administration that brought those um, federal charges? No, it was, uh, it was George H.W. Bush, the first, oh, okay. w, first George Bush was the 
president at the time, mm-hmm. 25 years yeah. ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, 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 we were little takes, so we, yeah. we don't remember Tom that. Tom Bradley too. was the mayor of Los Angeles. Yeah. Tom Bradley decried the, the verdict. Well, uh, I thought it was so interesting just because you know, now we're dealing with different DOJs and different federal charges being brought against different officers, so I was wondering you know, how that, uh, that played out back then as well. George, the President Bush called for the federal government to to look into this on civil rights ca- uh, charges within a week after the jury after the jury had reached its verdict. It was there was a, a uh, grand jury that summer, and and they got going on it right away. Well, speaking of uh, the federal government intervening with civil rights violations charges after the state level fails to get a guilty verdict, I guess it's appropriate now to talk about the Walter Scott case and the officer Michael Slager uh, was agreed to a plea deal this week. Uh, He had been previously found not guilty of the state charges. Uh, Jury couldn't come up with, I I mean, we were all, I think most of us were shocked, right? I think Dominique was the only one who was like, I saw this coming. (laughs) The rest of us were like, how could you not with that video convict this man? But they didn't. And there was a civil rights uh, trial up and he has opted to plead guilty to violating Walter Scott's civil rights. Did I get that right? Yeah, and, and more notably, the fact that uh, he can be put for um, in prison for life as a result. So, you know, he that was part of the stipulation of the plea deals, that they can ask for that. Right, and actually, it wasn't that he'd been found not guilty on the state. It was a mistrial. Uh, mistrial, and so he was facing the chance of the state refiling charges. Yeah, and there was some information that had come out that showed they were very close to finding him guilty, just you know, somehow missed the mark. So, uh, I mean, maybe, and then maybe, I wonder if he saw, you know, like the Lee Baca trial where yeah. originally there was a mistrial and it seemed like 11 jurors were going to vote not guilty and then the prosecution completely turned it around and got a conviction. And yeah. I wonder if that was in the back of his mind. Sometimes the prosecution can sort of recalibrate yeah. and come back with a stronger case a second time around and he's like, I'm not going to take that chance. And we know the courts kind of tend to give leniency in sentencing if they believe you've taken full responsibility for what it is you've done. So I think maybe that was a strategy here. Yemi, yeah, any yeah. idea how much? I th- uh, well, now I was just going to say that, yeah, I think it's probably both were at play in terms of accepting responsibility and hoping for leniency and also knowing that the prosecution, uh, the prosecution can make a stronger case the second time when they know kind of what worked and what didn't work the first time or where were the hangups for the jury the first time, um, you know, and how do we make those corrections. So that, that was, you know, probably just a strategic de- decision on his part. The family seems to be agreeable to this plea deal. Yeah. Um, the family of Walter Scott, and uh, one family member says they, you know, want the life sentence basically. But other members of the family are not convinced that that's what he's going to get, nor is what it's needed. Any idea? Uh, no idea. But I believe the mom of Walter Scott said, you know, to her, the the fact that he finally admitted responsibility and guilt for what he had done that was enough because no matter what amount of time he gets, he doesn't come back. You know, um, I suspect he'll get maybe a 20 to 30 year sentence. I think that there will be an argument for leniency in the case that he's, saved the, he's saving the money and you know, that's somehow- Of a somehow, trial. Money of a trial yeah. and somehow he's actually admitting responsibility and guilt and that'll move the department and people forward, so. So these two cases are also connected because the plea deal came down on the 25th anniversary yes. of the yeah. actual beating. Yeah. So it's very interesting how these cases are you know, tied to tied together, and then you know that we look back 25 years, and we still see not only prosecutions but convictions or guilty pleas are still very rare. Yeah. 
Um, it makes it's me hard for a jury to find a police officer guilty of criminal charges of of what they're supposed to be guarding against. Civil rights charges are a little different. Are and much and I believe what you, what you said in the book is usually the you get the state's version first, you know, yes. so that comes out very quickly and that kind of already chums the minds, I guess, of potential jurors. Right. I think you're probably, that the line in the book that stood out to me that you said is that the way the system is set up, it's almost set up for a presumption of guilt. Yeah. What it certainly is among the, among the public because among the public you you hear that the, a crime occurred, a terrible crime occurred, and then the police tell you who they got, who they arrested, and, why, and what they're going to charge them with. And then the district attorney tells you what they're charging these people with, and they're going to go to trial. Ordinarily, you don't hear anything from the defense right. in yeah. public. The defense just makes its case just to the jury in, when they're in the courtroom. And the general public has, in most cases, sort of lost track of that by this time. And so by the time they hear a verdict, they're astonished to discover that there was another side to the story. I think that's why potentially you see so many police getting the benefit of the doubt in these cases, because that's the narrative that's told first. But it's like we saw in that making of a murder, how quickly they were able to change people's ideas of what was taking place, because they did the press conferences and put that information out there. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know how they're going to be able to, uh, you know, the police department, put their side of the story and make their department or officer not seem as guilty as we all think in the case of Jordan Edwards. Yeah, I mean, that's what they tried to do, actually, but then, you know. Yeah, so this happened over the weekend. A 15-year-old boy, a passenger in a car that was moving actually away from officers, yeah. even though the officer's initial account was that the car was reversing towards him exactly. in, in an, an aggressive, aggressive manner. manner. Yeah. Uh, so that information comes out first, and then that suddenly kind of foments in the minds of people, but fortunately, quickly, we got the real story. And the real story is that the car was moving forward, and uh, the officer, his name has now been released, it's Officer Roy Oliver, who has served a tour in Iraq uh, from or, and has been military 2004 to 2010. He joined the force, I believe, in 2010. Um, he fi fired a shotgun into the car that uh, was full of kids, including Jordan's two brothers, who were then detained right after they had witnessed their brother being shot in the head. Uh, just a really outrageous uh, treatment of, of, of any, whether or not the kids were his brother, to have just witnessed that and then to be treated like criminals, much less that it actually was his brother, was their brother and then they saw that. I just, I cannot believe that people treat each other this way. The, I guess, only good news so far, we do know that the officer was fired three days after the yeah. incident, but clearly that's not enough for most people. But that's a clear difference because this is the police department saying that he didn't do what was what, what their policy is. So, and in the Rodney King thing, of course, they, it was the, he was they were following police policy. Right, yeah. and in addition, the fact that he lied—I mean, he lied about what the circumstances place, yeah. were surrounding the shooting in the first place. And again, it's one of those situations where, had there not been a recording of it, and it had just been this officer's word against the witnesses at the party or the individuals in the car. Odds are people would have be believed the police officer and he would have continued working yeah. without us. There was any, a lot of numbers that I saw on Twitter. Like he was like the 82nd child killed or 115th this or the 333rd person killed by law enforcement in this year. Um, so those numbers, though, are not tracked officially by the FBI. And that's been true since the Rodney King trial. And that's something that people have wanted 
for there to be official records of police shootings and brutality, and that is not still being done. Yeah, I think it's a transparency issue. Even in this case, they don't want to release, or they haven't released yet, the body cam footage that the officers had. So I think there's an issue of, well, transparency and an issue of maybe not wanting to inflame the public so they get a larger settlement or a lawsuit, you know, right. later down the line. Oh, I, I, I just, I, I hope, and, and we say this every time, this one seems really obvious, that there should be charges here, and then we're shocked when there are not. Uh, so are you going to be shocked when there are charges? Let, let put it this way, are you going to be more shocked if there are charges or if there aren't? If there aren't, I, obviously. Yeah, I'm usually cynical about, about well, certainly cynical about whether officers are going to be found guilty of uh, brutality, even when we have video. I hope that in this case where we have video evidence, where we have um, a clear evidence that this officer lied and was dishonest about what happened, uh, and plus the fact that the circumstances that the boy was, not that it should matter what age you are, but, you know, the boy was young, and hopefully all of those put together will, will lead to some level of accountability. Shaka, you were saying you would be surprised if he's not. If he's not, yeah. Certainly, with the police department actually firing the officer here, I think uh, he will certainly be charged. Yeah, I mean, Slager was fired, and and I guess but, he, was yeah, he was charged. So, yeah. okay. All right, so there's a good, I think, chance yeah. that he will be ch charged also. You know who won't be charged, though? Well, yeah, Alton Sterling. The officer who killed yeah. Alton Sterling. Yeah. The Department of Justice decided not to pursue any charges. Yeah. I didn't see any good reasons why. In fact, the only the story was about the fact that nobody knew that the DOJ was not going to press charges until it had been released to the public. Louisiana didn't know. The law enforcement, the mayor, nobody knew about this beforehand. That was the story. Yeah, I, well, I think it's a, it's a new DOJ, and I think Jeff Sessions is a little bit more, he's very more, he's a lot more police friendly, you know. Um, again, I didn't have all the details of the legal um, facts that were available to the DOJ here, and so these cases tend to be hard to prosecute on a federal level, but I'm hoping it's not speaking to a trend in the DOJ to kind of back off civil rights cases. Well, but I'm, mean, sure, well, I'm but sure that's what they're yeah, doing. Yeah, I but think that's what he said. <laughs> that's he plans stated, to do, right? Yeah. <laughs> that is a stated intention. It's an actual <laughs> initiative. Although I did see Jeff Sessions say something that sounded actually reasonable, and I think it was related to Slager, Slager yeah. that that that, that we won't tolerate was, excessive force against our citizens. Yeah, and so. I was shocked that he said that because every other word out of his mouth regarding law enforcement is that you must, you know, honor them and defend them, and that these civil rights investigations just uh, impugn their authority and, and get in the way of their well, being able to defend the law and all of this other. Yeah, what I, and think I, is I think it BS. kind of it speaks to a little bit about the Ronnie King thing is that Jeff Sessions only sees it as a few bad apples rather than as a systemic problem. So it, it doesn't surprise me that he says, okay, in this particular case, we won't allow this because he b does believe there's like 10 bad police officers in the nation and that they're mm -hmm. ruining it for everybody else. Um, and the fact that you have something 25 years ago that is so, pres um, so present today, I think it speaks to more systemic um, right. idea of racism and what's going on in these departments. Yeah, so Jeff Sessions comes from the great state of Alabama. Alabama. And <laughs> Alabama is on the rundown this week because of a, uh, a judge's decision to basically declare segregation legal. <laughs> it sounds like I'm talking some crazy talk right now, but I'm not. Somebody else explain this to me, because otherwise people are going to think that I have lost my marbles. So uh, the town, guard, the, uh, 
County of Gardendale, I believe it is, uh, they want to remove, oh, sorry, it's not, the Gardendale is elementary school. They want to remove themselves from the Jefferson County School District, yeah. um, saying that, the, the, you know, they want more control over their their schools and the education of their, their children. Um, but there was a question as to whether their reasonings for wanting to remove themselves from the uh, county system uh, were more nefarious in that, you know, they, they wanted to kind of exclude the... Um, Black population. The black, the, the black, black population. Because I think they were, they, they, that, that county is under an order where they, they had to segregate, and so there were stu uh, students from other counties, black, black, uh, predominantly black counties, I'm sorry, that were, uh, or black communities that were being um, bused into this, to their schools. this school, and they, these individuals at Gardendale did not want that. Yeah, apparently there it's a small little hamlet uh, that's predominantly white, but surrounded, I guess, by uh, predominantly black counties. And they, the judge even found that they were doing this because they wanted to keep the black kids out, the Smithfield kids, as they were referring to. But I guess somehow the judge found other compelling reasons to allow Which this to I, happen. I couldn't figure out what those were. Yeah. Well, I took I took <laughs> a look, and, and they were kind of... Um, Actually, it reminded me of you know Clarence Thomas's oh, no. oh, <laughs> opinions no. in the uh, in the affirmative action cases, where they mm -hmm. say that you know if the Smithfield students are you know allowed to stay in the in the district, you know they're going to feel they're going to feel unwelcome, and that's going to do a psychological harm to them and feeling that you know that you know because they're there, people don't like them, they feel inferior. So what, let's just save them from all that and and make it. I mean, they're comfortable in their own schools. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Um, and they said that this actually will allow the uh, Gardendale community to tailor the supervision, or that any supervision that is provided over this district in terms of um, their, their segregation segregationist ways <laughs> any 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 supervision that, that that does happen I mean it can be specifically tailored to this district um, and then they were also saying that some of the uh, individuals at Gardendale aren't doing it for they, they don't want to separate for or segregate for racial for reasons. racial reasons that they actually just want to have more control over the um, the education that's provided to their students and so that it would be unfair to those individuals who aren't wanting to separate for racist reasons to not then allow them to separate. Yeah. Uh, that's a lot more generous than I could find <laughs> as a reasons to allow yeah. this. I don't see how you don't see the overarching aim of segregation and racism as being deleterious no matter what control you have over your curriculum to all the kids. And so, and, and again, Smithfield Kids was used to just kind of label the black kids that they didn't want there. So they've been using these um, derogatory terms in reference to Smithfield Kids. So whether or not they're there or not, I think they're going to feel part of the other. And so they're going to feel, you know, less than regardless of what school they're going to as a result. So I, I think the judge should have looked at kind of the overall scheme. And there's a reason why this country went from <laughs> segregation to non-segregation, you know, so many years ago. So. And, and she, I mean, in, in the in the opinion, I mean, she covers the history of uh, like segregation. <laughs> she seems and, to understand. And, I mean, she named four diversities. <laughs> she yeah. she yeah. went she went through the I mean, case by case by case by case. Yeah. She discussed each of them and then compared them to the case before her. Um, and you know, and she and was strong strongly worded her opinion ag against the fact that you know this does seem like they are there's racial undertones to why they want to remove themselves from the county. Uh, that this isn't unacceptable. That this is deplorable. I mean, she was she she was very vocal about this, this judge, but at the same time, 
the judge said that just because there are these um, kind of racial undertones, that doesn't mean that there aren't practical reasons to allow them to Wait, remove themselves from the county. Which I have to think by by her own ruling, I think she'll get overturned. Uh, when you, we already know this. When you when you, we have outside evidence of your aim being racist or misogynist or any of the, like with the travel ban. The reason that got struck down wasn't necessarily the words of the travel bans, because we had the evidence that it was targeting a particular group. The spirit. Yeah, exactly. We had the evidence. And so the judge seems to have the evidence. I don't know how she arrived at the conclusion she did. So I think we'll see this kind of be overturned. Can we spell appeal? Yeah. Can we spell <laughs> yeah. appeal? Yeah. Absolutely. In the meantime, she did require that uh, this this uh, school district repay the repay the county for use of the building. So it's not just that they get to keep the building and you know the students stay and the and the, the Smithfield students go, <laughs> um, but they do have to pay back the county to the tune. I think it's a like it's a fifty million dollar building or something Whoa. like that. Okay. Fine. That's been the pragmatic thing that was good. <laughs> yeah. Right. So there there there, there were stipulations uh, in the in the opinion that weren't so positive for the Gardendale community. Well, to round out our cases of shocking stories, uh, there was a man in Milwaukee who died while in jail. He went without water for seven days and died of dehydration. Yeah. How did this happen? Yeah, um, well, th this is interesting because, so we know that happened, but uh, what was, what was the, um, the lady that ran the jail? Um, uh, so it really centered around um, one woman's account of whether or not the water was shut off and whether or not she knew the water was shut off. And it turns out within a few days they knew the water, they had video evidence that the water had been shut off to the cell, um, but it was not disclosed to investigators. So this whole process of trying to figure out why this happened was hampered by this one woman's account that she had no um, immediate evidence uh, as to how the water was shut off or how long it was off. Although there is a conflicting stories because the, the jail commander, Evans, um, she actually asked one of her captains to go check to yeah. see if there was if there was video showing what had happened, what you know, when was the water turned off, why was was it ever turned back on? The captain says that he reported back to her immediately that yes, there's a video of this. She disputes that, saying no, it wasn't until months, months later that I found out that there was video evidence because uh, she, ultimately she never she didn't she only recently handed it over when they found out that. Uh, they were going to be doing um, an investigation of their computer service of the servers computer service to potentially see that video. But on a more practical level, people in jail go without being observed or interacting with a a human being for seven days at a time. Nobody had a chance to hear him say, "I got no water in here." Yeah, and, and there was testimony from one of the guards saying that he didn't think he looked well. You know that he yeah. that he that he had been checking on him and didn't think he looked well. But why he didn't why he didn't find out that he didn't have any water? Yeah, and, and again they had turned it off because apparently he had flooded his cell um, prior. I thought somebody else was the one who would, had flooded it. Somebody before him. No, no I believe he it was flooded, him. He flooded, flooded another cell. cell. Yeah. And then he got oh. moved. Then he got moved. I and see. they turned off the water before he arrived. Yeah. Perhaps to keep him from flooding it, but then never. But no it one on said. Yeah. Drink. <laughs> exactly. But did they never bring him any trays? Yeah. Any food? Yeah. I I just I don't I don't really understand what's going on in jails in Milwaukee. Um, hopefully we'll find out soon. Yeah, so they're really going to be looking at her culpability as far as um, what she did to whether hamper the, you know, if she tampered with evidence or hampered the investigation. Yeah. So, you know, the name of this show is Justice is Served, and oftentimes, like, you know, a lot of the cases today, I mean, except the Slager one that a little feels like yeah, Justice is yeah. Served, we'll find out when we hear his, his actual sentence. But... And before your book, um, Kathleen, I had thought for sure that justice had not been served in the Rodney King trials. 
Knowing what you know, having spoken to the four men and women of these two, two juries, do you feel that justice was served in the Rodney King trials? In the end? Yeah. Well, in the end, the two officers that the federal jury found guilty, they served prison terms. The, uh, the two that they did not convict, they shared the feeling of the earlier jury that these officers were just, just doing their jobs as good officers, that they, didn't, that they didn't go too far. They followed their directions and they didn't you know, continue to do anything they thought was excessive. And of course, all of them lost their careers as police officers. Um, so I suppose justice was served in the end. Uh, was that worth the cost of uh, the millions and millions of dollars in damage that was done to Los Angeles yeah. and the, uh, the psychic damage to everyone yeah. over all these years and the lives that were lost? Yeah, remains to be seen. And I think these are great issues to always talk about and discuss, and sometimes it's good to have it over a meal. Um, <laughs> <that's> so <laughs> maybe Emmy can, <laughs> can <laughs> give us a little bit more on that. That's true. You know, sometimes what we call it stress eating, mm -hmm. uh, essentially, and you know, Blue Apron can help you with that. Um, stress cooking. Yes. <laughs> It'll help relieve you. I mean, at least so that they send you all the stuff and it's like, basically exactly what you need and so there isn't a whole ton of prep work to be done but it's all really fresh and it is all really easy and that I mean actually I kind of like the chopping and all that kind of <laughs> part it is actually relieving of some some stress and it's also I like it I'm not stressed by it because I know that the 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 food the produce even the meat comes from quality places they're really uh, big on on that and have you guys Tried I haven't it? tried it, and you're looking around quizzically. Have you tried Blue Apron? I've cooked Blue Apron. Oh, yes, okay, great, awesome. And even me, who I think I suck at cooking, <laughs> I turned out some pretty good meals. Well, they give you step-by-step -step recipes that you can finish pretty soon. Some of the things that they have coming up on their menu are beef teriyaki stir-fry with sugar snap peas and lime rice, baked spinach and egg flatbread with sautéed asparagus and lemon aioli, three cheese and baby broccoli stromboli with tomato and oregano dipping sauce, crispy salmon with potato salad and pickled mustard seeds. So you have a variety of meals that are, you're gonna have sent to you. When I saw the, the names of the meals that I was gonna be making, they <laughs> sounded so fancy and complicated. I was like, this is gonna There's be no a disaster. Way, right? But it actually is not as hard as it sounds. Not at all, and it's and it's cheap. I mean, you go out to a restaurant, you're easily spending, you know, forty, fifty dollars. This, uh, if you average it out, can come to less than ten dollars a, a person. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it, it's really fun to do with other people. So families really, really uh, have some good bonding time yeah. when they get to do this together. You read the book, and then you get to talk a little bit about some of these weighty issues while you cook a meal. <laughs> that's, that's a really it's good idea. It's actually a really great idea yeah. having like a dinner, a conversational dinner party. Yeah, based Over off of your. Yeah, it's a good exactly. moral certainty. <laughs> <laughs> and so you should definitely take a look at uh, this week's menu, uh, and you can get your first three meals free by going free. to blueapron.com slash justice. You'll love how good it feels and tastes uh, to create an incredibly home, an incredible home-cooked meal with Blue Apron. That's blueapron.com slash justice. For three free meals. It's worth it. That's a good start. To, <laughs> to try it out. All right. Thank you so much for Blue Apron support and for your book, Moral Uncertainty. Thank you for having me. And that will be it for this week's episode of Justice is Served. Please come back next week when we have a brand new episode. In the meantime, you can tweet at us. I am at Chelsea Galicia. I'm at Yams. I'm at Shaka Strong on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. See you next time. Bye, guys. Bye, everyone.
executives Kevin Undergaro, Dario Christie, Tiana Hobson, and the entire BHL staff, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us. Info at BlackHollywoodLive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us, or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I am the official voice of Black Hollywood Live. Scipio, Instagram me at KingXOBay. Thanks for tuning in. Hollywood Redefined. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.